I'm Nick Harvey Doyle, an Anawan man from the northern tablelands of New South Wales. The Yarn podcast is made on the unceded land of the Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Bunurong people. We'd like to acknowledge First Nations people as the first storytellers. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Always was, always will be, Aboriginal land. What countries do you think are most responsible for the climate crisis? I'd say a lot of the first world countries aren't doing enough, considering the amount of power that they've got. The major ones that drive, I suppose, global inequalities and that reap the benefit of that. The developed world has a bigger role to play. The developing countries, the country where I come from, it's facing the consequences. I mean, I think Australia is pretty bad. We are a very wealthy country and we're not doing anything that was even like in the Paris Agreement and that's like the bare minimum, right? And we could be doing so much more. From the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne, this is The Yarn. I'm Elliot Rodriguez. The Pacific island of Kiribati could be completely submerged by rising sea levels in just 70 years. But this island nation is among the world's lowest emitters of CO2. Australia, on the other hand, is among the highest. In 2019, we emitted 21 times more CO2 per capita than Kiribati. Today, we're bringing you three stories about climate injustice. Stories about the world's richest countries accelerating climate change and the developing countries paying the price. It's the second episode of Climate Generation, a two-part series about uncertain futures, impending crises, and the generation forced to navigate them. First up, Timothy Evitz on disruptions to our global water cycle and how little Australia is doing in response. Timothy spoke to Dr. Tamor Sohail from the University of New South Wales. He started by asking Tamor about his research into changing patterns of rainfall and evaporation. We actually don't have a very good grasp of how our water cycle is changing in response to climate change. And a big reason for that is that the majority of our rainfall and the evaporation that happens on the planet actually happens over the ocean. So the study was mostly aiming at trying to quantify this missing part of our water cycle. And so we developed this theoretical framework which allowed us to actually be able to trace what the salinity of the ocean looks like now to where it entered the ocean. And that's actually a good representation of where there's rainfall and where there's evaporation over the ocean. So this was a new way of looking at existing salinity data. Did it come up with new results? We already knew that the water cycle was amplifying over time. In general, rainy parts of the planet, they were getting rainier and evaporative parts of the planet were getting drier. Most estimates said that the water cycle had amplified by about 3, maybe 4%. We came up with an estimate that was closer to 7 or 8%. And so basically we were seeing that the water cycle has amplified at double the rate of what we expected from previous studies. And so we were basically wanting to sound, I guess you could say, an alarm bell that our water cycle is amplifying at a rate much faster than we previously thought. Does that mean that our existing models of what's likely to happen are wrong? Do they need to be updated in terms of things like flood planning and bushfire planning? Yes, obviously this does have implications on on planning, infrastructure and, and all of these other things. And Australia has a lot of problems with droughts and bushfires, those dry areas where that tends to happen. 
Are you now expecting to see those get drier faster than we previously thought? Yes, that will put stresses on things like water supply, uh, biodiversity and, and things in these regions. And that, that is something that needs to be planned and prepared for. And do you think Australia is doing enough to plan for that? I don't think that the Australian government is doing enough. I don't think that the current government and the current targets that have been placed are, are enough to reach, definitely not enough to reach 1.5 degrees, and probably not enough to reach 2 degrees either. And we were told for a long time that if we want to avoid the worst effects of climate change, we needed to keep it to 1.5 degrees. Now we're being told that's not possible anymore. What are the kinds of effects that people should expect to be seeing? With increased uh, climatic warming, there will be an increased frequency and intensity of extreme events, extreme drought, extreme rainfall, um, more stress on food supply, uh, increased sea level. And there's definitely a link between that and long-term uh, water cycle change. Do you think there needs to be more science and more scientists involved in the design of policy rather than just politicians? I think there is a gap in science communication, let's say that much. We're not ambitious enough with our policies to address climate change, and I don't think that the public is well informed enough about the climatic changes that are happening around them to be able to push for those ambitious changes. That was Timothy Evitz. Next, Norson Lee on the shortcomings of the Green Climate Fund, a United Nations initiative which is meant to help developing nations with climate finance. The fund was founded in 2010 and distributes tens of millions of dollars per year. But a 2022 report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change found that there's still not enough aid being given to the most vulnerable countries. And some countries are being ignored altogether. Norson spoke to climate finance expert Pia Treschel. She started by asking Pia what the reasons for these failures are. So there are a number of reasons. The Green Climate Fund monitors the countries, produces available data, prioritises funding for least developed countries, small island developing states, and for countries in Africa. The first is that those three groupings of countries are very diverse within them. Within those groups of countries, there are more and less vulnerable countries, and there are countries like Afghanistan that are not receiving any money at all, despite their very high need. The second point is that countries are not homogenous. And certainly if you are an Indigenous group in certain countries, if you are an ethnic minority, a religious minority, um, the only way to access money from the Green Climate Fund is with the approval of your national government. And so if you are from a group of people who are deprioritized by your national government, then there is just Buckley's chance of you being able to access any money from the Green Climate Fund. And so it's unit of analysis. The group of people who are receiving funding are always grouped by country rather than by people or by need. Given the huge funding gap, what solutions have government or organisations come up with? There are two active observers that the Green Climate Fund has designated, helping to hold the Green Climate Fund accountable when projects are implemented. They are helping in their specific countries, the Indigenous groups, to inform the Green Climate Fund whether they are in fact um, giving Indigenous peoples free prior and informed consent of how the projects will affect their lives and livelihoods and their lands. There are also both some of the developed and some of the developing countries have really been great advocates for trying to keep the compromise. It was designed by a transitional committee that had more developing countries than developed on it. Some of the developing country board members in particular have been pushed for more just outcomes for the fund. 
You talked about the solution, ensuring better outcomes for the Green Climate Fund and its benefit. However, a recent assessment from OECD reveals that in 2020, 70% of the climate finance for the low-income nations was provided through loans rather than grants, which can force those countries into further debt. So do you think there is a risk that climate finance may do more harm than good for the vulnerable countries? Well, I don't know that I would necessarily leap to that conclusion. I suppose it's a possibility. You know, I'm talking about some of the most vulnerable people on the planet who have done very little to contribute to the causes of climate change, and yet they will suffer the impacts of climate change. Why should we be asking them to pay to adapt to those impacts. They have reaped no benefits from the burning of fossil fuels. And yet, if you give them a loan for adaptation, then they are expected to pay for the benefit of, of adapting their lives to these impacts that were caused by other people. It can force countries further into debt, um, and that can have terrible ramifications for them in the long run. But it isn't inherently making things worse if you did a good adaptation action. That was Norson Lee. But it's not as if young people in developing nations are passive in the face of this climate emergency. Our next story is about one group of Pacific Islanders who have taken what they call the world's biggest problem to the world's biggest court. They're called Pacific Island Students Fighting Climate Change. Since 2019, they've been campaigning for the UN to get an advisory opinion on climate change from its International Court of Justice, or ICJ. The opinion would advise countries on their environmental obligations. And in March, they finally succeeded. This would be the first time the ICJ has considered climate change, and its opinion will be the most authoritative to date on how international law relates to the issue. Jerome Depro spoke to Cynthia Hanuhi, the leader of Pacific Island Students Fighting Climate Change. He started by asking how the group of Pacifica students got to this point. If you look back to how it started, we will move to act because for us, we don't have the luxury to talk about these issues on the global stage or not. While we talk, we do see our people trying to adapt or trying to survive the adverse effects of climate change. The solutions to address these issues are not at the pace that the adverse effects of climate change is affecting us, so it's not proportionate. But also, we know that leaders are listening to the youths who are worried about their future and the future of their children as well. I would like my children to enjoy what I have enjoyed as a child as well. So that is what it means to us. So your organization has done a lot to educate young people on climate change and taking action. What role do you see young people as having in climate action today and in the future? For us in the Pacific, we rely so much on the traditional knowledge of our elders in order to build for the future. So I do acknowledge the importance that youths have. You know, now they are the leaders of tomorrow. They are the ones who will make policies in the future. They will be the ones that are sitting at the negotiation tables in the international level. So building that, investing in that future now in terms of having youth movements like ours and Friday for Future will build their capacity and point them in the right direction. The Pacific Islands, as you said, seeing first-hand effects, have been called the front lines of climate change. What would this decision mean for the Pacific Island nations? If you look at the international level, a lot of the climate leadership have been taken up by Pacific Islanders. When you look at what is affecting us, what we are most affected by, it's our human rights. So 
a right to clean water that's now with the sea level rise it's coming through the drinking waters that the women have to move further to collect water which is not safe for our human rights what the ICTO initiative will will mean is that when discussions have been conducted to find solutions, there will be uh, more of a human rights approach to solutions. Just last Tuesday, the UN announced that globally we'll likely miss the temperature goal of remaining below 1.5 degrees warming, and that all countries should bring forward their net zero goals by a decade. Do you think this news is likely to spur countries into action? We are all affected by climate change globally, but for us in the Pacific, they're on the front line of climate change. And so the bottom line is we are all affected, but in different ways. So I hope that is enough for everyone to do more. That was Jerome Depro. A massive thank you to Timothy, Norson, and Jerome. The Yarn is from the Center for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne. It's produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Our executive producer is Louisa Lim, and our producer is Thomas Phillips. I'm Elliot Rodriguez. See you next week.